Lost Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artists thinkers. Great to have you with us. Hi, this is Tracy L. Slatten. We've been having some technical difficulties. I'm going to blame Mercury Retrograde. So this is Tracy Slatten hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers, and I'm so happy to welcome you to this show. We have a great show lined up for you today, and I'm grateful and humbled that so many people are listening into the show. I created the show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. Please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com, independent artist thinkers. But I think my live chat room might not be working today. I think it's down. And again, I'm blaming Mercury Retrograde. So um, in the coming weeks, we have some great guests coming to talk to us. Next week on May 28th at noon, actor and producer Alexis Suarez will talk about patience, practice, and persistence in the actor's journey. On June 4th, we will welcome Tracy Gray, who's the founder and president of the Sankofa Global Project, an educational organization that supports underrepresented students by introducing and supporting them as they venture into the fields of science, technology, engineering, art, and math. On June 18th at 1 p.m., Desiree Watson of Wellness International will talk about the wellness lifestyle. So tune in and keep checking the website, independentartistthinkers.com, and the Blog Talk Radio page to find out who will be on the show. I am delighted today to have Peter Trippi on the show, and he's a wonderful man and a friend of the family and just a, a marvelous person. Peter Trippi is editor-in-chief of Fine Art Connoisseur, the bi-monthly magazine that serves collectors of historical and contemporary representational paintings, sculpture, drawings, and prints. He is also president of projects in 19th Century Art, Inc., the firm he established to pursue a range of research, writing, and curating opportunities. Trippi holds a master's degree from New York University in Visual Arts Administration, as well as a master's in art history from the Courtauld Institute of Art London. As director of New York's Dehesh Museum of Art, Trippi guided its renovation of the former IBM gallery and presentation of nine exhibitions of 19th century European art. In 2002, 
Fidon Press published Chippy's 250-page monograph, J.W. Waterhouse, which reassesses the Victorian painter and royal academician best known for his Lady of Shallot at Tate Britain. Trippi went on to guest curate the Waterhouse retrospective that appeared at the Groninger Museum in the Netherlands, London's Royal Academy of Arts, and the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. He is now co-curating a touring exhibition about the Victorian painter Lawrence Alma Tadema, um, and it's to open in 2016 at the Fries Museum in the Dutch artist native city, Luarden. In 2013, Trippi completed a two-year term as president of the nonprofit organization Historians of British Art and then became president of the Association of Historians of 19th Century Art. So he's extremely accomplished, and as well as being an absolutely lovely man and, and brilliant curator of art. So, Peter, welcome, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Tracy. Glad to be here. So I'd like to start out by learning a little bit about you. And when did you decide to go into the arts? Did you always love art? And what about curating art drew you in? So start early and just give us a little bit of background on who you are and how you came to this field. Happy to. Um, I came from Washington, D.C. Uh, that's my hometown. And I was uh, the only child of two parents who were 40 when I was born. So it was a rather unusual upbringing. I, I, my parents are still with us, thank goodness. Uh, they're doing well. Uh, near Washington. Um, my mother worked and volunteered at different points at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. So I was always going to museums as a kid, uh, basically to uh, keep her company. I was going along in summer times, especially when I wasn't in school. And I came to see that museums were fun, that they were not scary places or places where you go only when it rains. And I thought that they were full of wondrous things. And so I think ultimately that guided me down the road into museum work, that I realized that there was life beyond the guards, beyond the closed doors of the storage rooms, that there's a whole world of staff there. Uh, and Washington is a great town to learn about museums because they're all free. So um, I went off to college uh, at William & Mary. I studied art history and history. I did a year abroad at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where I fell in love with British art, especially of the 19th century. And then I went back to London, to Britain, uh, to study um, the Pre-Raphaelites in particular, that great mid-19th century. Christina Rossetti. Absolutely. The Rossetti family. Incredible. So I feel like this idea of um, being uh, broad in my training, but then also zooming in on a specific period uh, has really served me well. Uh, and I've gone in pretty deep on the late Victorian period, uh, especially uh, J.W. Waterhouse and Lawrence Alma who were very famous in their day and then were forgotten in the 20th century. Um, I just like looking at art. I think it's as simple as that. And I, I enjoy going to other kinds of museums too, but there's a real pleasure that comes from looking at art, whether it's old or recent. I'm, I'm always happy being in a museum or an art gallery. I am too. I love museums. And did you ever want to be an artist or you were like, I'm going to direct and control and help and manage? Uh, to be honest with you, I can't draw a stick figure. So it really wasn't uh, possible. Um, the funny thing is that actually in college, I had thought when I arrived that I would go into political science, being from Washington, having been you know, interested in uh, federal work. I had done internships at the Voice of America and the Department of Defense and uh, the Air and Space Museum. So I, I thought that I would kind of go down a more government service track. Um, and then I realized actually that my best grades were in art history. And when I announced at the dinner table that I was going to major in art history, my mother burst into tears <laughs> and basically said, 
we'll be supporting you forever, <laughs> which I think is so true that people do worry that the arts are underpaid and overworked. And I think that's something we can pursue a bit today in our conversation. <laughs> I hope so. I, I actually do have later on in my sheet of questions, I do have like some a, a question about what should art historians do, you know, how do you support them in making money, that kind of thing. Um, so I was going to ask you how you got involved with British art and with Waterhouse. Was there one particular painting of Waterhouse's that you saw and fell in love with and the light bulb went on over your head and you said, this is it, this is what I'm going to study, this is my focus? You know, it's funny, actually, that the Waterhouse Project came to me, but you're absolutely right that there was this element of preparation uh, involved. Um, I had graduated from the Courtauld and I'd gone to work at the Baltimore Museum of Art. I was working on a project there about the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, which is full of great British art, of course. Um, and then out of the blue, uh, the publisher of Fiden Press contacted me, thanks to a tip from my former teacher in London, and said, hey, we need to do a Waterhouse book. Are you interested? And although I had not worked on Waterhouse formally, I had worked on other people of that period. And my professor knew that. Uh, and it was very kind of her to put us all together. And I said, yes, I think Waterhouse is great because he's got this uh, pre-Raphaelite intensity, the storytelling, the drama, the magical and mystical aspects of the imagery, but also there's a French technique. And I thought that was a very interesting juxtaposition that very often the Victorian painters have been dismissed as being so English and kind of chasing a dead end, you know, that Rossetti or Burne Jones, that those were not really influential careers. They were wonderful careers, but they didn't really lead to a next generation per se because World War I ended that world. Well, with Waterhouse, it's a little different because he was picking up French techniques, which we recognize widely as impressionist or you know, post-impressionist. So I think that it was the perfect storm. And I was so honored and pleased to be invited to write that book because I thought, okay, this is a story that I want to know more about. I was sort of fired up by the questions that I had already raised in my proposal. And then it's gone from there, basically. That whole back and forth across the English Channel is a really interesting story that hasn't been looked at as carefully as it should be. Wow. Well, thank you. Yeah, so those are great. So now I'm going to ask you, what is art curating? Could you elaborate on that and why is it important? Well, um, you know, the word curate is now overused in our society. I think all of us walk down the streets and see signs that say an apartment building that has been curated for your pleasure or uh, a fashion collection. Or a friend of mine says, you know, she curated a Pandora station. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. I mean, it, it It is a word that is prestigious, and I think we all or most of us now understand what it's about. Um, on the other hand, I think that the the core um, meaning is about teaching uh, that, that essentially uh, the, the person who is a curator is a teacher and and whatever the material may be, but in my case art, you want to organize those artworks into a coherent and informative display. Uh, and you have to select. I mean, that's another reason that I'm an editor of a magazine, because ed the word edit is all about cutting things out, right? Um, and I feel that we are living in a world of way too much. We have too many works of art, too much information. Some of it is terrific. Some of it is terribly mediocre. We need people who know how to tell the very best from the good, from the not so good, from the terrible. And I think that we're losing that just generally. And that's why I'm excited that curating is still among us, the problem is that if everyone is a curator, then how much excellence is really being called out? I mean, it starts to become almost a joke when the marketing people tell you they're curating and actually they're just pitching the usual stuff. So having said all of that, 
I love it because you get to deal with real objects. In, in the case of paintings for the Waterhouse exhibition and the Almatanama exhibition that's coming up, um, we're actually handling expensive and precious masterpieces, um, and we're going to arrange them in rooms that are um, uh, obviously custom designed for our message. You know, what is it we're trying to say about these artists? Um, and each venue, as you travel the exhibition around the world, changes because it's not just the audience that's different. The language being used is different, but also the way that people come at these works, um, that they have a different viewpoint. If you're English, you look at Waterhouse in one way. If you're Dutch, you look at him in another because you don't have quite as much of the backstory. And I love that. I like being responsive to that. I find it very creative. I'm not an artist per se, but my creativity comes out in the curation and the writing. Well, that's cool. And I like what you say about too much. It's um, It reminds me of a rant I have about how reality TV is the end of Western civilization and the demise of the Enlightenment. Um, and it has to do with the lack of values and the lack of the ability to tell a story, that anything that you can throw up on the screen is worth is a story worth telling. And that is just not true. We need to discern what is good and what is not good. And um, and I think culturally, and then I'll stop ranting, but I think culturally we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. As we try to be a more egalitarian, grassroots kind of culture and give everyone their due and appreciate all kinds of things and all kinds of people, we've thrown out discernment, which is um, work that is, ex, you know, the ability to judge and to evaluate what is good and what is not good. And I think that's important. But that's my rant for the day. All right. All right. So in agreement, absolutely. And the reason the magazine is called Fine Art Connoisseur is because it's about looking and knowing. Connoisseur. Uh, it, it sounds all fancy schmancy, but actually all it means is uh, to know and to look. And, and I feel that that element of slowing people down to say, hey, what is good, better, best is not inherently a bad thing. But you're right. In our world of everyone can do it, it's a problem. Uh, and I like being feisty about it. I mean, I'll just come right out and say to people, uh, no, don't like that. It's not well made. Uh, and they don't like to hear that. I mean, especially in the art world where, you know, theoretically, at a young age, we want to encourage all children to make art because it does allow them to express themselves. And of course, we should not be criticizing. I'm going to say amen. <laughs> we, we don't want to criticize them for not making the, you know, stick figure properly. That, that There's a moment where that is absolutely cool, that just do it. But then we have to kind of bring the student along and help them see the difference between the okay and the excellent. And there's a reason that people are fascinated by Leonardo da Vinci, to just name one example. He was excellent. And I think that that yeah. still has a lot of power. And so why do we celebrate the mediocre or the vaguely talented alongside Leonardo? I mean, we do and we don't. I think if you really scratch the surface and get people to stop and think – they do see the difference. But reality TV, to name just one example, <laughs> is so not interested in people stopping and thinking, is it? No. It wants them to buy and buy quickly. Yes. Yes. What you're talking about is, you know, my husband, Sabin Howard, who's a classical figurative sculptor of, you know, considerable talent. A great one. A great one. Thank you. I have to hold the microphone out to let him say that twice. So, um, But he and I talk a lot about the difference between self-expression and art. And there is a difference, and it has something to do with excellence. And even though I think all great artists self-expression, when you look at, you know, the Virgin on the Rocks, you know, Leonardo or the Mona Lisa, um, or any of the other paintings that Leonardo did, then you do see a self-expression, but you see so much more too. Bingo. Uh, and I feel that that then is something that is um, 
a theme that we've got to draw out in our commentary about art being made today, that I happen to advocate representational art, whether it's historical or contemporary. I am all for great abstraction or great conceptualism when it's done right, when there's some real meat to it. And I feel that um, this notion of um, uh, being able to discern, number one, in each category, and number two, to um, honor the expressivity but not to baby people who are just being self-absorbed, that that's where it gets tiresome, that this is a person who really could just as easily uh, write it down in a journal, that why are you bothering me with something on the wall? Uh, and of course, the answer to that is that, number one, all the barriers are down, anything goes. And number two, art has become commoditized, that we're living in a world of over-commercialism in every field. Mm -hmm. But art now is absolutely an asset. And why wouldn't a person who's vaguely talented or not talented at all <laughs> try to sign up for the gravy train? All of a sudden, art world equals gravy train. Well, now if you we go down this path, I'm going to start ranting again about how people think that all art has to do is hang on a wall and get more expensive. But in that vein, I do want to go back to something. You had sent me this wonderful video on YouTube of you speaking at the Representational Art Conference, and you were amazing. It was a magnificent video, so I would encourage all my listeners to go to YouTube and look for TRAC, um, the Representational Art Conference, and look for Peter Trippi. It's a, a fantastic video. But you talked about the toxic art trade. And I was riveted because, you know, Sabin and I deal with this all the time. Um, and I, I was going to ask, you know, before watching that, I had written the question, what are some of the challenges um, in the art world? And I think the toxic art trade is probably right now the biggest. And so could you expand on that? Could you elaborate on that? The, the trade is a very valued and welcome part of our capitalist society, that I am not in any way a communist. Um, I feel like you know, communism has its charms, I'm sure, at some point. But it seems to me that we, we need the trade to flourish. And so that has been always at the bottom of my um, pile of concerns, that I'm not looking to overturn that. Um, what I do feel, however, is that the success that we've witnessed over the last, let's say, 20 years – in the world of especially contemporary art, but also some historical masterpieces, is toxic. That, that it has become about the money and not about the art itself, how it rates against other examples by the same artist, in terms of um, artists that are lesser known who might be producing work that's just as good, if not better, but don't have that brand name. That it's very much become about the branding. Uh, and the whole world, of course, is going down that road. There's a reason that Prada is doing very well, even as sales begin to soften in places like China, that certain companies have powerful brands. I'm not commenting on the quality of Prada clothing. I think actually some of it's fantastic. But there is this desire by all people, especially newcomers to the party, to sign on to something that's already known, that is branded, that is perceived as prestigious or safe. Well, that stops being about looking and that starts being about looking for the logo, that, that it is very much easier to just go with what everyone else is doing. And especially in the art trade, certain dealers who have very powerful levels of prestige or money are able to kind of bring that crowd along. And it has become a tidal wave. It is no longer just a, a passing thing. It is shaping the way that we all talk and think about art. So if, to recapitulate what you're saying, it's that this – um, the toxic art market is about the brand. It's no longer about beholding a piece of art and having the experience of a great piece of art. It's about the logo, the, you know, how much 
um, money that piece is worth. Absolutely. That I think people are asking about the value first and then the art itself next. Now, obviously, museums generally work against that. They're trying to provide a neutral forum uh, where they can hang the work and it's not for sale and nobody is being pressured to buy anything. That's why I love museums. On the other hand, an article came out in the art newspaper, last issue, front page, very interesting article that indicates that a huge percentage of museum exhibitions are, and I'm talking about contemporary artists here, of course, are drawn from only six major mega galleries in the world. That essentially, if you draw a line between the museum exhibitions and those particular galleries, stables of artists, you will find a huge correlation. Now, there are many reasons perhaps that one could justify that, that after all, those are senior artists. Those are the ones who are the most famous, the most important. People are curious about them. They're accomplished. On the other hand, it's also much easier for the museum curators to go to those mega galleries and obtain the work because the galleries do all the legwork. The museums have less pressure put upon them. And also, by the way, sales result on all sides. So what you're talking about is um, that the galleries, which are in the art, the toxic art trade, are pre-curating for museums so that you're not really getting the most interesting art. You're getting the most branded art. Bingo. That's exactly it. And that worries me because we have trusted museums for many centuries to tell us the straight story, to go ahead and do the hard work and to highlight things that are off the beaten track or forgotten. Uh, and, and to let us know what they are. And they're still doing that by, by all means. They really are. But if you really look closely at the contemporary programming in particular, you're going to find this very curious pattern of circling back to the mega galleries and other leading forces. Um, now, there's one good solid reason for this that I think no one would want to deny. The boards of trustees of museums are increasingly occupied by corporate people or newcomers to the field who are, after all, following the brand. And they encourage the staff of the museum to follow the brand, too. So I'm not accusing the curators or directors of doing something evil, but I think that there's a kind of natural, innate tendency to please your boss. The boards of trustees are the bosses. They hire and fire the entire staff, including the director. Well, I'm interrupting just to say the problem is with the corporatization of art, you're going to lose real creativity. I totally agree. I think that this is a real threat to us. Because we know there are creative people all over the place, but if all the stories of creativity are not getting told, if only some of them are getting told to a general public, uh, into the mainstream media, then we have this kind of very skewed and lopsided view of what's going on here in this country or in the world. I mean, let's talk about the world because it is more global. People travel on jet planes every day all over the place. So I feel that, that as as much as we would like to fancy ourselves a free society, we're actually not free anymore. And I'm not talking about government censorship. I'm not even talking about money woes. I'm talking about this kind of very quiet, insidious pressure that's forming when it comes to the market, the toxic trade. Well, this is uh, the, you know, the corporatization of everything. It's, um, I think it's the greatest danger to the Enlightenment and the Age of Reason is um, multinational corporations that function as sovereign nation states without oversight or accountability. The only thing they're accountable for is how much money they make. And it is, um, it's soul destroying. It's you know, it's just, it's the worst thing that can happen to a free creative people. Well, and, and the other piece of this, of course, is that there is a globalization of those forces such that as I travel pretty widely, I see the same artists represented 
in the same kinds of venues, that there is, after all, a circuit of museums of contemporary art, and I'm using a capital M, capital C, capital A, or it might be Institute of Contemporary Art. I'm telling you that I can go from Bangkok to Beijing to New York to Istanbul. I will see the same 50 artists hanging in the permanent collection with great glory. And they're not necessarily bad artists. Please, let's understand that you know someone um, hugely talented may be one of the lucky prize winners here, <laughs> but there are some other great artists operating in the margins and they're not really going to have a chance to be in those spaces uh, because after all, they're living. They don't qualify to go into the historical museums yet. That's fine. I understand that you're not going to put a living artist right next to Leonardo. Okay. Uh, but what do we do about this? We need to address this very frankly. Well, I can speak from the first person. You know, Sabin and I have been wor- working with someone to get him a museum show because he certainly, you know, his work he's created a magnificent body of art, a large body of art of figurative sculptures. He also has drawings, a you know, body of art that is beautiful drawings, Renaissance quality art drawing, and recently abstract mobile. So we're um, we're working with someone to get a museum show, and the lack of interest is astounding. And this is someone, Sabin has done a tremendous grassroots campaign over the last 15 years of getting out into the world. He's got thousands and thousands and thousands of Facebook friends and fans. He's got, you know, uh, thousands of hits on his website every day. He's got thousands of Instagram followers. You know, he's out there in the grassroots in a huge way. And his, I can tell you as his webmistress that the hits on his website are from all over the world um, every single day, this all over every country you can think of, and he gets emails continuously from students, from universities. Um, students email him all the time saying, "My teacher was talking about your drawing. My teacher was talking about your sculpture. Can you tell me?" Blah blah blah. Uh, he's got there's all this interest in his work, and yet, and yet, because he's not at one of those six mega galleries, you know, he's having a very hard time getting a show that he rightly deserves as a modern master. Um, and I'm not just pitching him because his, I'm his wife. I, I truly believe his work is that good. I do too, actually. Uh, and I certainly am trying to help as I can. Um, it seems to me that that's a great example, that this is not a, a kid. This is an experienced master. 52 um, years old. <laughs> 52, to be specific, <laughs> not a kid. Uh, looking good for 52. Yes. Um, but, but I feel that this is exactly what we're talking about. And again, it is not a conspiracy. I'm not a paranoid. I don't feel that there is anything... Um, devious or illegal going on. Unethical, maybe. I mean, let's face it, the minute people get into power or control, they start to favor their own kind. And that's just human nature. But I think, again, this myth that we've got about a truly free and open society isn't quite right, that we've got to try and fix this. Now, the internet has proven to be a great, great joy in that regard. You talked about huge numbers of hits and so on. In other words, those users are voting with their feet. They are out there watching and loving. That's great. But you know what? That's not the same as a museum show. And I'm not just talking about, oh, more sales for Saban. Not at all. I'm talking about the seriousness that I as a curator could bring to his career. And I'm not trying to trumpet my horn any more than Saban's. But but we talked about curating at the beginning of this conversation that to select, I mean, let's be honest, Saban, it's not 100% every single day. He's an artist. He's a human being. And so certain works are going to hang or stand better with others. And you need an outsider to do that. It's not fair to the artist to ask him or her 
to make those choices themselves. That's just not normal. I wouldn't do it for myself. Mm -hmm. So I think that we need to get together somehow. It doesn't have to be me. It could be someone else and select the best work of Sabin and put it into the right space. And, you know, there are museums all around the country that are looking for great content, but somehow they're not connecting with this other world of talent that they are only reading the mainstream media, they are only getting the press releases from the big agencies, and they're watching what the mega galleries do. Um, And of course, their boards of trustees are telling them stories. Um, Weirdly enough, Tracy, things are much better in smaller and what we might call less populated places, that I find that there are outstanding institutions doing great work in places like New Britain, Connecticut, or Youngstown, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds crazy. They're not provincial in the least. They are certainly engaged with what we're talking about. But let's face it, they're in places that are harder to find. And the attendance is lower. The funding is lower. uh, They have, uh, if you will, simpler spaces or spaces that are not going to be able to turn over as much. So I say that with love, but but I feel that we've got to do better than that. We've got to start making sure that regional and even national scale museums are telling this story too. And it's not about being bitter. It's about being positive, that we've got great things to show. Well, this is the meritocracy. We're Americans. We believe in the meritocracy. And what you're saying is there is no meritocracy in the art world. There's the old boys network of the same 50 artists who are shown in Bangkok and in um, Beijing and New York and uh, and everywhere else. So, you know, the meritocracy is is not happening, and it should, because people are being deprived. And you're saying they're out there voting with their feet, going to Saban's website, which is great. And he's, you know, he answers all the emails he gets from people, and he gets them every day. But it's not the same as when, you know, they can foist, someone can foist a show and a sculpture show. There's a lot, there's some expense because of transporting giant bronze sculptures and small bronze sculptures and putting up the lighting because, you know, you know from your work as a curator and Sabin will tell you in no small detail that lighting is everything for art. So we need the, we need the, um, we need the meritocracy. So I had sort of started, um, Here's something else. So in your video, in the YouTube video from the Representational Art Conference, you said, and I'm going to quote you, significance and profundity are terrifying ideas for many people in the toxic artwork trade that we are witnessing. The last thing they want to do is talk about significance and profundity. Now, this is fascinating to me because last week when I interviewed Roberto Ferri, who's just a first-rate, amazing figurative painter from Italy, He specifically mentioned how important it was to him as an artist that paintings have meaning and how sad he was that in the art world, there's not much place for that. So can you talk about this and expand on this? I'm I'm very glad that Roberto Ferri, who is a terrific artist, uh, concurs on this. Um, I I look forward to meeting him. Um, You know, it seems to me that this uh, element of um, uh, sober reflection, of deeper values, meanings of connecting with the past or with other people uh, in ways that are not trivial, all of that is going unattended. Um, and, and it seems to me that there certainly are exceptions. Um, I, I will name one, Anselm Kiefer. This is a great artist who is hugely popular, who is represented by a mega gallery, who has done magnificent, ambitious, 
almost crazy scale works about his experience as a German in the post-war period, um, very powerful. So there is success rewarded appropriately, that these are well thought through and he's very eloquent about why he's made these and how they connect to history and myth and so on. So it is not by any means impossible to do, but we're not seeing quite enough of it. There is a lot of art that is celebrated today, which is one note song, which is trivial. Vapid. Vapid, absolutely, superficial, all of that. And, and of course, you know I'm going to say Jeff Koons or, you know, <laughs> Andy Warhol. And, and, you know, that all of this, of course, is of a piece that, you know, anybody who knows their history understands that these things, that the legacy of pop art lives on. Um, but I also want to point out something that's related to that. Because we're living in a more global world and because a lot of money is arriving from places like China or Russia or India, uh, Brazil, um, where people don't share the same stories, the same myths, the same legends, um, the same perception of history. And, and this is not in any way meant to be a criticism. It's just an observation that if you present – and I'm referring to Saban Howard's work for a minute – uh, a work of art that is uh, very much rooted in some sort of awareness of the classical past or mythology, you're immediately setting up a challenge for a, for example, Chinese uh, viewer who doesn't have that literature, that myth in mind. That, that they, they have their own, of course. I mean, China has a much more ancient civilization than we do in the West. But nonetheless, there isn't the passion, perhaps. And we need to do a better job of communicating those themes in a really palpable and non-patronizing way. That we need to say, hey, the reason this is significant is because tick, tick, tick. Well, the art market does not want to slow down and bother with that. They would much rather present a balloon dog to that Chinese buyer because, after all, what you see is what Shoot you get. Shoot me now. <laughs> so there's a reason that those are being produced in such huge numbers because they're easy to digest. They're delightful to the eye. And I'm the first to admit that the Jeff Koons show at the Whitney was a triumph. It was so much fun. It was like going to the carnival. It was incredibly beautiful and shiny, and people were having a ball. But Well, if that's what you want, why not go to Las Vegas? Why go – to that museum. Why not just go to Las Vegas? Because then you can get a free buffet also. <laughs> it's absolutely true. So so that is exactly where we're at. Um, now, I don't want to be the Coons beater-upper all, all hour. You can feel free to be that here. <laughs> but I feel that this notion of culture, of, of having the backstory, is very important, and we need to be very frank with each other about it. That, you know, if someone is coming from a foreign culture, or let's talk about the United States, if they're not classically educated, if they don't know because they've grown up in a different part of the country or with lesser um, educational amenities, um, we need to help them get there. And museums are perfectly positioned to do that, that a Saban Howard show in a museum with proper interpretation would be a revelation to absolutely everybody, no matter what their educational background or cultural origin. So I am not in any way saying this is unwinnable, but after all, we're living in a world of PC, and there is perhaps this reluctance on the part of some of the curator gatekeepers to admit work that is explicitly uh, either historical-minded, like classicism, or very regionalist. Now, here's an example. There are certain artists that I've been covering in the magazine who are devoted to their home regions. I just did an article on an artist who is from Kansas, and he makes beautiful images that will remind you a little bit of Thomas Hart Benton. Uh, he's called Brian oh, Haynes. Oh, truly, really. That's cool. So now, if you don't know what Kansas looks like, then maybe you're not going to feel compelled by these works. But if you're open to the beautiful terrain, I know that sounds you know 
people in the audience may be thinking, wait, Kansas is flat, but actually, no, there are amazing hills. And also he's, he's in Missouri too. It's that border area between the two states. Well, we've got to tell that story. Now, I think you'll agree that someone like Andrew Wyeth has celebrated Maine mm -hmm. and Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania, and that is all now accepted in the canon of American art. And you can actually sell an Andrew Wyeth picture abroad. For a lot of money because people don't worry about the landscape. They think about the melancholy or the amazing technique or so, the fame. So they've been educated in how to appreciate it by virtue of the toxic art market. Bingo. That Andrew Wyeth is a commodity now, and, and so is his son Jamie. They're amazingly talented artists. I'm not questioning that at all. But they've been branded. The Wyeth brand is very powerful. But what about Brian Haynes? Why can't we brand him? And I don't mean to the sky. I don't mean that he needs to be a billion dollars. Is he seller. dead yet? <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> but see, this is a fair question that you've got an artist who is, you know, equipped to talk about his home region with real passion. And it is just as worthy of respect as California landscape painting or Andrew Wyeth in Maine. So I feel that we've got to uh, make room for that. That's fair. That is equitable. That is truly democratic. Uh, and it could be just as easily the South. It could be the Bronx. It could be Detroit. I'm not talking about Midwest versus California versus New York. I'm talking about real America. Let's bring it on. Well, I always think great art should transcend and does transcend um, its localization. So, for example, the Iliad is just as relevant today as it was to the ancient Greeks. Or there's a, a novelist I admire named Gray Giles, and he writes, I think all of his books are set in the Deep South, but I don't care. I'm a new, you know, well, I lived all over the place, but uh, in the last, you know, few decades here in New York, I consider myself a New Yorker, but still, Greg Isles, oh my God, he's amazing. So, um, you know, and I think that Sabin's art, because it's the human body, I feel that the body transcends Greek mythology, even though he has a Hermes and an Aphrodite, you know, that maybe in China, where they do have an incredibly ancient, unbelievably rich culture, there's still the appreciation is we're all human. So, um, but I think what you're saying is that the art market, the toxic part of it, has gotten in the way of that, um, of the way great art can transcend its locality because some of those great artists aren't branded yet. Exactly. That's right. That there is this perception or a worry, perhaps, among the gatekeepers that there is this localness, that there is this kind of um, opacity, like, oh, people won't get it or they'll need too much explanation. We don't want to slow them down too much. They'll start asking difficult questions. You know, that's not fair. I think that there is a way to put it across in an educational, non-patronizing way. And that's one thing that museum curators can do awfully well because they're not trying to sell anything. They're just trying to put it out in front of people. Now, the internet, too, is incredible because it allows us to stumble upon these things. But let's face it, there's no go-to place, you know, that, that if there were a single consolidator of fabulous art, believe me, I would recommend it. I mean, I'm very proud of our website. I love your programs, but I don't think that we could ever pretend that we are the single go-to place in fine art. So uh, we have to be mindful that the internet is this weird universe um, and it's hard to focus. So museums allow us to focus in a much more real and powerful way. I agree. I agree. This focus. The other thing you said is about slowing down. I'm just thinking about all different interviews I've done. Um, this is, I think, my sixth show in the blog talk, in the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network for Blog Talk Radio. And um, there's a commonality 
And the commonality is, uh, you know, last week I interviewed Dr. Bill Burnett, um, who's a psychiatrist, and I asked him how he got involved in researching parental alienation, and he sort of told how, and then he said, in life you have to slow down and pay attention. And the week before that, I or two weeks before that, I had no. The week before, I interviewed Dr. Jane Eli, who's a master healer and a teacher of indigenous wisdom, and she talked about slowing down in your life and feeling yourself on the earth. And so here you are talking about how the commercialization of the world has sped everything up so that the toxic art market doesn't want to slow down and doesn't want people to slow down. And really, the antidote, and I think what what great art gives us is this moment where we are stopped. I mean, I know the first time I wrote about this in The Art of Life, the sculpture book I did with Sabin, the first time I saw the winged victory in the Louvre, you know, it's up that Daru staircase, you know, I look up. And it was this shattering moment of seeing this gorgeous, headless sculpture that absolutely transcended time and space and made me stop and everything fell away. And I think that's what art can do. It's about exactly the opposite of what commercialization is about. Totally. I I couldn't say it better. Absolutely. And I think that we need to offer that wherever we can. And that is something that is not in the interest of the toxic art trade. It's as simple as that. Um, And I feel that, you know, we uh, are all in this together, that that this is not about bashing them or making sure that they close or trying to insert ourselves. But we have to talk honestly about other venues, other ways of sharing this imagery. Um, And that's why I'm doing the magazine. And that's why I'm here with you. And I feel like going out and lecturing, you know, what the heck, let's just bring it on. Let's have those frank conversations without bringing anybody down. We just want to increase the number of voices heard. Uh, I love that. And I'm going to go to this question. And that is, which audiences are best served by the current scenario by the toxic art market? Well, um, (laughs) Obviously, people in the trade themselves are growing rich and feel more powerful than ever. Um, The artists themselves, who are lucky enough to be tapped, are very happy about it. Um, It's worth pointing out that there is always in the history of art, at least in the last 125 years, a cycle of taste. And I don't want to be a doomsday guy, but I know for a fact, having studied late 19th century and early 20th century academic art, that people who were on top of the world in 1895 were being given away or cut out of the frames, literally. The canvas was thrown away and the frame was kept by 1935. So things change remarkably fast. So there is no doubt that there will be a reckoning of the current art stars in 30 years' time. I promise you there will be storerooms across America full of much of that work. Not all of it. Some of it is absolutely going to stand the test of time. And this is the peril of contemporary art. We've always known that, that, you know, not everybody becomes Monet. Not everybody becomes O'Keeffe. That's okay. Um, Having said all of that, um, I think that the other people benefiting from this craziness are the people who are looking for the accoutrements of sophistication, that we've got a lot of new money. Um, and it might be literally foreign money that you know has just been made in China or Brazil, or it might be people a la Real Housewives who suddenly want the trappings of wealth, and art is a useful tool. Now, it was always thus. Look at me. I've got a Picasso in the bathroom. Absolutely. Now, we don't even want to ask what kind of Picasso it is, but it, it is for them. It's a brand, right? Uh, just like the Prada bag. And I feel that that is something that is, of course, are we surprised? coming in at the same time as the explosion of wealth, that the 1% or 2% take your pick, um, that whole gravitation toward ostentation is going to include art as much as it includes fine cars and fine wine 
and uh, travel or you know cameras or airplanes and yachts and all, all of that. So art, of course, is reliably considered to be a prestigious luxury all the way through history. That's why the popes collected and commissioned it, right? Mm-hmm. But we've got to slow down and say, hold on now. That's not what real art is about, that there is something else going on. That's Yay, deeper. Peter! <laughs> so, um, you know, obviously I'm often branded with the brush of conservatism or reactionary, and I, I know that it sounds like that. But I'm just trying to talk sense. I'm trying to put this into a historical framework. I'm actually quite liberal in my life, uh, but I recognize that the, the baby in the bathwater analogy is so right that this whole thing has gone way too far and we've got to figure out a way to kind of carefully get the water out without the baby going to. <laughs> Yay, Peter. That was amazing. I'm thinking when you talked about the reckoning, I'm thinking about how Caravaggio was, what, a couple centuries not regarded and then suddenly rediscovered. And I look at a Caravaggio and I, I have a love-hate relationship because the spirit is rotting. So for me, that tortures my soul to see these paintings where the spirit is rotting. So, But there's no denying the master the masterfully done how you know Caravaggio's mastery is unparalleled maybe it's amazing so I don't know how could we humanity western civilization have lost Caravaggio for a few centuries well but uh, totally a valid question this whole cycle of taste uh you know in in that case um it's very much about a bunch of moving parts that were adding up against him specifically his sexuality the violent death his problematic relationship with the papacy. I mean, all of that was definitely getting in the way. Um, And and indeed, you know, the arrival of the Enlightenment made work like that that was so raw and so violent become unacceptable. It was considered decadent. Um, I actually would like to cite another example that's less problematic, Vermeer. Vermeer was a superstar in his day in the 17th century Netherlands, completely forgotten until the mid-19th century, and then rediscovered slowly by people who were interested in optics. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it, that the Impressionists looking in new ways, the changing science, all of that becomes Vermeer's perfect sweet spot. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, by 1900, you're fighting to get a Vermeer. And in 1996, there were people lined up around the block at the National Gallery in Washington to see Vermeer. Uh, well, okay, that didn't come in an irresistible, unchanging arc, did it? It was a slow back and forth. And so I take great comfort in that as a historian. I think it's really cool that we can find those stories. But I'm worried that with all this enormous amount of great work that's been made in the last, let's say, 100 years and still being made today, in fact, probably in greater doses, and I'm referring to representational realism or you know, figuration, whatever you want to call it, um, there's a sheer quantity problem. That, that we have got to be mindful of the fact that how is all this art going to come through to the next generation for them to reevaluate it? It's going to be sitting in warehouses. Those warehouses are going to develop leaks. Um, we've got to kind of get our arms around this. And museums are an important player in this, of course, because they do keep things sheltered and safe. Um, so, everyone. but that's especially why they need to be more open and less um, congealed around fifty, the same fifty artists. Exactly. There's that element of responsibility that they need to see the entire artistic landscape and not just the stuff that's put right in front of them by the PR agencies. So we can help them by tipping them off. And there are a few initiatives going on that I find very exciting, especially to do with artists' estates, artists who've died in the last, let's say, twenty years. There's more and more work being done on how that they're. Um, inheritors, their uh, descendants, um, can take good care of the work, can catalog it, can make sure that it gets on to the next uh, generation. Um, but it's a big 
project. And, and you know, to, to be very specific, thinking about America, where we live, the Whitney Museum of American Art, the, the reopening of this uh, institution recently, is tremendously exciting because they clearly are now equipped with more space to be looking at other stories in the journey of American art that have been neglected. And I feel that that's a kind of wedge, that there are more, for example, black and female artists on view at the Whitney now in the permanent display than there have ever been before. And they are delighted about that. The curators themselves feel gratified that they've been able to pull more out of storage. Well, let's keep going with that. Yeah. Let's build yeah, them another yeah, yeah. building <laughs> and let's have some more fun because clearly there's a lot of stories to be told, not just the same old Alexander Calder and Edward Hopper stories. Well, you had mentioned in that wonderful video, the TRAC um, Peter Trippi video about the golden age of art that's going on right now. So can you just say a few words about that? Sure, absolutely. I, I'm convinced that it's true that uh, right now we've got this world of great art being made by people of all ages, um, but especially, I would argue, people between the ages of, let's say, 25 and 55. Um, they are classically trained. Uh, they have been training you know, as early as, let's say, 1982 uh, when the New York Academy of Art opened and as recently as last month. Um, and they are working in academies and ateliers across the United States and Canada, uh, a few in Europe. And they are taught proper techniques when it comes to drawing in particular. And then that pushes out to painting. Yeah, Sabin is very adamant that drawing is the foundation of art. It has always been said by people who seem to know what they're talking about. Uh, you look at the Renaissance and Disegno is, is absolutely at the center. So then the sculpting comes. Obviously, that's a whole different direction rather than painting. Uh, printmaking is, is going along with it too. Um, and it seems to me that these ateliers, which are very focused and very small, really, I mean, maybe you know, 10 to 40 students per year, um, are creating these um, gifted, technically gifted people. Uh, now, my challenge as, as a consumer and an observer is to try and make sure that there are people out there to buy the work that these artists are making. Because if they're disenchanted, if they find that they're not selling, they're going to have to go into part-time jobs. They're going to have to go into illustration. Not that there's anything wrong with illustration or video games, but you know they're going to apply those great technical gifts in other directions that are not truly artistic, that are somehow, you know, not, um, not exactly what they want to do. Exactly. That, that's really not their their dream. So we've got to work on that in terms of the demand side. The supply side is there. And Sabin is a fine example of someone who's come out of that world and now is running his own career. Um, I call it a golden age, and I'm proud of it. And I think, aren't we lucky to have that running at the very same time as all of this crazy commoditized nonsense over on the, um, the fame side? It's interesting because there's two forces, it seems, happening right now, and they're antithetical. And one is the golden age of this explosion of great art that's happening in the small ateliers that have sprung up to give people a classical and uh, background in excellence and in drawing. Um, and then the other is the commercialization force, which is the toxic art market. So they're happening both at the same time, and I think consumers are kind of caught in the middle of two wave fronts. But I would argue, and, and this is an interesting door to open, um, I mentioned Ensam Kiefer before. Now, he is certainly not classically trained. If you look at his material, uh, it's very raw. It's got all these um, very um, ephemeral materials like straw and so on. So that's a separate topic. But I do respect his depth. Now, I want to cite artists like John Curran or uh, um, Jenny Savile, uh, April Gornick, um, Eric Fischel. 
John Curran, uh, um, Walton Ford, people who are making well-made representational art, which for some reason or another is tapping into the zeitgeist of that uh, big art trade. The, the, these are artists doing just fine commercially. Now, it's a whole bunch of reasons. They might make sexy art. Like, you know, the imagery of Jenny Savile is all about the body. It's very corpulent. It's kind of shocking and grotesque. Um, Eric Fischel is famously interested in sex of all kinds. Um, there's a kind of social fashionability to some of these artists because they're lovely people who go to the right parties. There's always been that in the art world. But I think that Someone like John Curran is fascinating because he talks so eloquently about Dutch Mannerist art of the 16th century. He knows his art history. He understands where his work is coming from. Or Walton Ford, who pays homage to uh, Audubon, uh, the great uh, ornithologist. Um, that These images of animals out in nature, these fabulous watercolors of huge scale, are well-made and really thought-provoking, but they also catch you by the throat because they're violent and they've got this weird kind of eccentricity to them. So I think there are wedges in for us in the academic world, if you will, the, the atelier world. I think that we can celebrate those success stories and try to follow through the door that they've already opened. Now, it's human nature, as you know, to close the door behind you. That if you get into the castle, you bring the moat bridge up because you don't want to, too much competition. So someone like Sabin or other artists coming out of the atelier world may actually be worrisome for some of the cool gang, because they actually have the technical chops that the guys inside don't. Um, and let's face it, that always gets awkward when someone can draw better than you, but they're not as well known. Oops, problem. Right. So I think everyone is sort of dancing around this contradiction. Well, that's great. So what you were talking about, about different people making it into the palace, um, it reminds me, we were at a panel a few years, four, five or six years ago, I think maybe you were there. There was some art critic who shall remain nameless with two PhDs, um, who I think is an idiot. But some young artist raised their hand and said, how do I get to be famous? How do I get to be known? How do I break in? And this guy with two PhDs who didn't know you know, one part of his anatomy from another said, oh, go to go to parties and stand around with a drink in your hand. And Sabin leaned over and said to me, oh, my God, does this guy live in 1976? And so Sabin found this kid um, afterwards and said, kid, don't listen to that guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Let me tell you how you're going to start to break in. And I'm still kicking the door open, so I don't have all the answers. But don't listen to him because no party is going to get you there. Absolutely. There it is. I mean, that is shocking to hear. You know, we all understand that being sociable is a great asset in life. But nonetheless, you've got to go about it in other ways. Um, I feel that that kind of cynicism, that kind of clubbiness is unacceptable, that, that we recognize human nature, that we are fundamentally tribal. On the other hand, we need to be better than that. And the Internet has made it possible for people of all different backgrounds, all around the world, of different classes to come together. And we need to tap into that. We need to use that and work, if you will, from the bottom up. Um, and, you know, the museums and some of the galleries give a lot of lip service to democracy and uh, group funding or crowdfunding or, you know, sourcing, all of that. Well, let's play it. Let's go ahead and make that happen because I think actually there's a huge world out there of people who would support this kind of art. One example that I don't love, but I just want to point people to it, their website. It's called Art Prize, and it's in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it is this $250,000 first prize. That's a lot of money. And the public comes through in Grand Rapids and looks at all these installations of different kinds of art, some very good, some quite terrible, and they sort of vote. And literally, it is grassroots at its best. It is no accident, my friend, 
that all of the winners in the past five years, the first five years of the program, have been representational. Because I think basically (laughs) the public loves that. Now, do I love all the works themselves? No. But I still think that's very revealing, that there is a huge audience out there that feels totally disenfranchised from art. That once they're encountering it, they see, you can draw, you can make things, you know, that, that they've been denied that for a very long time. And we need to work on that opportunity. I wholeheartedly concur. And I have to tell a story about Sabin. And I'm not really trying to promote him at this moment, but this is a great story. So he had the Aphrodite, which is a five foot six inch female goddess, nude, beautiful sculpture. He was taking her to his studio, which is in the South Bronx, and he took it down out of the van. I think he he might have had a guy with him, but he got it out. So it's standing on the street in the South Bronx, and he's unlocking the door and doing what he has to do. So it took takes him a half an hour or so. In the space of that time, 10 people converge on that corner in the South Bronx, you know, right over the 3rd Avenue Bridge where the History TV Channel sign is. 10 people converge. You know, there were a lawyer, there was a policeman, there was um, – uh, a delivery guy. They're, they're, I mean, these were people from all walks of life, and they all came up. They gathered around his sculpture, and they said, "Oh my God, this is real art! I didn't know anyone did this anymore. Did you do this? Oh my God!" So he got this from very, very educated people to people you know who were not as educated, and they they were of all races and all ages and both genders, and they all converged in this street corner in the South Bronx, to say, holy moly, that's amazing. And I just think that there's something about art that grabs you. But, you know, we're getting low on time, so I want to quickly have read, have my listeners know where they can find out more about you and where they can reach you. Absolutely. Uh, it's very easy. Uh, if you go to www.fineartconnoisseur.com, and I always spell connoisseur just to, just in case, C-O-N-N-O-I-S-S-E-U-R, uh, you'll find there my uh, Gmail account, uh, my address, uh, peter.trippy at gmail.com. And I would love to hear from everyone uh, because we use the magazine as a way to reflect all of these issues that we've been discussing today. Peter, you've been amazing, and you're such an eloquent guest and so knowledgeable. And Oh, my God, you have to come back because you are – will you come back? I will come back, absolutely. Yes, we barely saw at your service. We could have this conversation for hours. So I just want to say thank you and to Peter, who was amazing. So, guys, fineartconnoisseur.com. You can go and check out the magazine, which is gorgeous and always so informative and wonderful. Um, and to everyone who's listening, thank you for joining us. And please come back next week to hear actor and producer Alexis Suarez talk about his path as an actor and producer in terms of patience, practice, and persistence. And on June 4th, Tracy Gray, the founder and president of the Sankofa Global Project, an educational organization that supports underrepresented students, will be on. So thanks again for listening. Come back next week and check out fineartconnoisseur.com. This has been Tracy L. Flatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.